0: This is the Brew World Order Podcast. Welcome to the Brew World Order Podcast, the podcast where we talk to brewery owners and ask questions about owning a brewery so that future brewery owners can learn a thing or two. My name is Mike Curtin. If you haven't subscribed yet, well, that's just a damn shame. This is episode number 76. And in this episode, I sit down with Wayne Burns and Laura Worley, co-owners of Burns Family Artisan Ales in Denver, Colorado. Wayne and Laura tell us how they found the funding to open their brewery, how they chose to focus on high alcohol beers, my favorite of course, and during COVID they did Facebook Lives to keep their customers entertained. They even told jokes and danced. I try my best here at the Brew World Order to entertain and educate, but I'm sorry guys, I just won't dance for you. I won't be your little monkey. I feel like I'll lose more listeners if I do. So for now, Let me soothe you with the sound of my deep voice as I guide you through another interview down Brew World Order Lane. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, I'm Mike Curtin. This is the Brew World Order Podcast. And today I'm with Wayne Burns and Laura Worley, co-founders of Burns Family Artisan Ales in Denver, Colorado. Guys, thank you for being with me. How's it going? Absolutely. Hello. So can you just give me a, a little bit of a background on how you guys got into the industry, where you grew up, all that good stuff?
1: Sure. Um, it, there's sort of a two-part answer, I think, in terms of uh, how we personally got into the industry and then how our company, uh, because we have been in the industry for a lot longer <clears throat> excuse me, than our company has. Right. Uh, I started brewing professionally in the early 90s okay I was a home brewer in the late 80s and I went off to the Siebel Institute in Chicago uh, and that sort of thing worked for a place in Detroit which is the area that we're from and so that was how I got involved in the industry and then in Laura's case uh, when we got to know each other about a dozen years ago Uh, She, before long, got involved with me at a place that I was working at, and so she got involved about 10 years ago um, along with me.
2: Yeah, so I I apprenticed with him, essentially. I'm a professional chef as well, so um, it was a little more natural to jump in to professional
1: brewing, so... And then our company, Burns Family Artisan Ales, uh, we were looking for an opportunity to do our own uh, brewery under our own control, and we had been looking at that possibility for some time, but uh, it's easier said than done, and we were patient. But eventually, we were able to find enough parts to all come together that we were able to uh, open our own place in Denver. Uh, we opened to the public in August of 2018.
0: So almost four years ago at this point. Gotcha. Well, um, from the moment when you guys finally decided to open your own place from that inception of that idea, uh, to the moment you finally opened your doors, what do you think was the hardest part for you? I would say
1: funding.
2: Sure. Oh, I mean, leave, right? Cash flow? Yeah.
1: And as a person who had been brewing for a living for uh, nearly 30 years at that point, um, brewing as a career has an awful lot of great things about it. But one of the things that is rarely highlighted as a great thing is a very high rate of pay. Uh <laughs> So, it becomes somewhat challenging if you want to uh, accumulate some wealth and set yourself up with uh, a, a nest egg, so to speak, out of which to invest and at least partially finance your own place. So, for us, finding the necessary capital, you know, like I think under almost any circumstances, you're going to be looking at a minimum of a six digit number to have enough capital to start your place. And depending on what you're trying to do, it could easily be a seven digit number.
2: And then I think the <clears throat> other thing was, um, you know, we were surprised by the fact that, you know, Wayne could come into opening this business with, you know, at that point over 25 years of professional brewing experience and plenty of awards and, you know, earned a reputation for himself Got himself the nickname of High Octane Wayne and things like that, Um, and and we felt had a lot of followers, Um, and that was you know part of what the marketing strategy was. It's like here we've got this guy, Um, and and it didn't it didn't run, um, it it walked for a while, so um, so that was I think maybe more of a surprise than you know, but also a little bit more of a challenge. Right.
1: So, yeah, I think, I think we definitely <laughs> ran into a bit of a circumstance of uh, you know, what have you done lately and what has this company that you are at um, done lately? And of right. course, if it's a startup, the answer is, well, nothing yet. Yeah, and sure. so uh, folks were, I mean, it, there's a range of course, but some of the customers thought it was really cool and we're interested because of the amount of experience that we had. Uh, and I think be fair to say the majority of our customers didn't really pay that much attention to that aspect and just said, Oh, this is a new brewery. And then, and
2: let's give them six months. Yeah, yeah, right. And yeah, hey, Let's get, give them
1: six get, months before we go and make sure brewing. make sure they get used to brewing beer and yes. that sort of thing, which, of course, was a little bit frustrating yeah, for I us because so. we were kind of like, well, you know, we did that 25 years ago. Exactly. Uh, but um, it, it was the reality that we experienced. So then you try to make it, you know, well, OK, ultimately what we need to do is, you know, produce a good product, uh, provide good service. And a comfortable place at which to hang out and have some beer. And we were poised to do all of those things as well. We had just maybe hoped we could have hit the ground running a little bit more easily. Folks didn't quite, you know, jump on board that way. And, okay, so then you just got to take a little time to build your own new brand and reputation on that. So that was a little bit of a surprise to us. But... At this point now, we feel like we're very much... Of course, COVID has made everything challenging, but uh, we are well along the way toward building that now.
0: Gotcha. And uh, how did you go about finding the capital to fund your business?
1: Um, Well, I think we did some pretty standard kinds of things. We reached out to family and friends, and, uh, and we reached out to some banks to explore various options for a loan. And so we, over time, put together various pieces that way. So um, it was challenging. We, we weren't fortunate enough to have a bunch of capital ourselves which of course always makes it easier to uh, get things rolling. And uh, we weren't fortunate enough to have a lot of family and friends with a lot of money available to just say, oh, that sounds great. We think you'll do great here. You know, I want to be a part of it. It was a little more challenging than that for us. And, you know, again, that's I think that's probably true for the majority of folks. Uh, sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you just have to kind of earn it little piece by little piece. And and. Um, but ultimately, in terms of uh, the uh, ways that we did it, it was pretty standard, I think it would be safe to say.
2: And we, we also got lucky. Um, we had been looking at a lot of places with real estate agents and things like that, and it. Um, Got a notice from another brewing friend that a brewer was looking to, um, you know, sign over his lease to somebody and have someone take on, you know, purchase the majority of what was in there. So we got a turnkey brewery up to the point where we also had to get our own license they were taking their license with them so we couldn't just literally turnkey into the brewery but um but because of that and the location and things like that we were able to get in um and get started with you know, maybe a little bit less flash. Um, you know, we didn't have one of those super cool all glass and all steel um tap rooms, but um but we had a tap room and we had a place to brew and for us that was that was it, you know. And at a price point that was a lot lower than a lot of people who are getting into the industry now. Right.
1: So yeah, and it, it allowed things to go much more quickly because the physical location already was a brewery with brewing equipment in it. So all the utilities, you know, electric, plumbing, gas, all that kind of stuff, brew kettles, fermenters, drains, all that stuff was there. And so we didn't have to go through uh, what the vast majority of folks have to go through. That is a construction process. Uh, Once they say sign their lease for the place, then they've got to go through a construction process and that, I mean, of course, it costs money, but it also costs time. And we were able to uh, move through that clearly more quickly than we would have otherwise. So that was, as Laura said, that was lucky for
0: us. Yeah, from, from what I hear, it's uh, it's a huge headache going with all the permits and construction, and it's time-consuming. So
1: it, it, It's never right. easy. Sure. Never easy. I, I've been involved with the construction of several breweries right. over the decades, <clears throat> and um it's a uh, complex challenging often quite stressful uh you know and just there are a lot of things you know you've got to not just get a bunch of construction done but you've got to coordinate all these disparate uh pieces of the picture whether it's the equipment supplier whether it's the electrical contractor the plumbing contractor the gas and you know just on down the line 101 different things you got to get the right permits from your local municipality all these things need to be done and you know in theory they can all flow smoothly together and and then most of the time actually reality happens and there are some challenges for sure so we were able to Avoid a decent amount of those kinds of challenges,
0: which was lovely. Right. And speaking of uh, stressful situations, uh, you opened in 2018, August 8, 2018, and then um, about a year and a half later, shutdowns occurred for COVID. How did you guys go about dealing with that? Um, how did that affect your business? And what did you have to do to make it work?
2: Well, I. It's COVID, right? I mean, we were we were just at the point where we felt like we were doing the that hockey stick takeoff thing. We finally figured out what you know our customers wanted and things like that. So that was it. we were we were feeling like we were in a really good spot. And um, and yeah, we were we had because we like I said before we kind of walked before we ran. We were. At the point where a new employee was going to start, we got shut down on a Tuesday, they were supposed to start on Thursday. So Wayne and I had been bartenders and everything else for a year and a half. And we're looking at, oh, oh, hey, (laughs) (laughs) we make we might. Not that we don't love our customers. We do. But, you know, might be able to step back from the bar and, and you know, be able to focus on some other things right. for a hot second.
1: Yeah. But, focus on making beer. Focus on uh, trying to market and grow the business. Yeah, for sure. Rather than just bartending a lot. Working on which, your business instead so, of in your so business. So
2: we were back to doing everything again, which, you know, that's, that's what you got to do. And, and working through the pivots and trying to stay on top of everything all the time. That's just stressful. Um, we were, we were just, we, um, we put our beer, we package it in bottles. Um, the beer that we package into bottles is generally higher alcohol. So, um, We do do lower alcohol stuff, but generally that's just on tap. And so we had just gotten to the point where we were at at a beer bar and a couple of retail places, but didn't have a bottler, a mechanical bottler.
1: I was hand bottling every single bottle.
2: So it was five minutes in a there. bottle, you know. <laughs> so when somebody says, Hey, can we have a case of that? We're
1: like, right. sure. Wonderful.
2: <laughs> I'll see you in an hour. <laughs> you know? Um <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, like, I had the
1: lever one. Oh, the lever one. Um okay, but
2: so so yep. as we're looking to pivot to get things to the curb for people. And, um, you know, package stuff up and try to get it to more retail and things like that. That would, it, you know, just took a little bit more time. Um, fortunately we had it because, you know, we weren't always able to even serve from the bar, right. we, we, but, we weren't bartending anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so, so there were, there were some things that were certainly a pivot and then, um, you know, I mean, COVID's not, not over as you and I know well, um, it's, it's still happening and it's still affecting how people engage and go out. Um, I think there's a deep relaxation from, you know, where we were and with vaccines and things like that, that make people feel a lot more comfortable with going out. But, but, you know, it's been two and a half years and, and there's still a pandemic out
1: there. And, um, so you know, the, we, we still have folks walk in wearing masks. Yeah, right. and um, and so of course that means that you can't measure it, but inherently there have got to be a few folks who are like, uh, I just don't feel comfortable right. yet, so they don't even go out at all.
2: Well, we actually have a, a few of regulars. I mean, it's hard to say regulars when they came in the first year and a half, and then, but it's but but that also leaves us in a spot where as a as a baby brewery right when we're just starting to get the facts and figures and the data and and trying to do the plotting of where are we going next um you know we got into this is what seemed like it was going to be endless loop of you know protecting everybody and making sure that we were creating the the You know, safest, cleanest, healthiest interactions, um, things like that. So that was that was a huge focus. I think we did well. Um, And and I think that I mean, we had we had um, a little bit more investment that happened. So we were able to weather things You know, from our standpoint, without worrying too much about the whole fact that, you know, now we need to buy more bottles and, you know, a bottling machine. We did buy that. Um,
1: Well, that's the thing. Basically, at at a time when our revenue got cut off by the COVID shutdown, we basically needed to write some big checks. (laughs) Because we needed to get a better way to bottle, to bottle more beer. And we also just needed to get more bottles, which are not free no. <laughs> and we hadn't previously had a need to have that much of them in stock. And all of a sudden we had to have a lot. And so, you know, Hey, we lost our revenue. Let's write some big checks.
2: I did at the very beginning though, <laughs> um, make very public from Burns family artisan ales perspective that we were fortunate as a business because we had beers in barrels and tanks in stainless that was aging and was intended to age. We right. had next year's beers ready and very much encouraged people go drain those tanks from the people who've got, you know, all of that three to five to 7% hoppy beer that they've got to get rid the of. The they is ticking fast oh, on that dump. Dump.
1: Yeah. So, We don't um, want our friends to have to just dump all their beer. That, that so it was actually us,
2: kind so. of a, a a cool, interesting way for us to have a different rapport with the brewing community around us, too. So that was, you know, just little silver lining pieces of doing our business that, you know, you didn't expect to be able to get those smiles about when you're like, oh, my God, there's (laughs) who knows the world's going to end here, you know. Um, But we were able to make it. People supported us and continue to support us through all of that I think we did it with um, enough grace that people appreciated that and saw uh, you know maybe a little bit more integrity out of us um, so again building the brand it just more opportunity to build the brands we um, we did spend the first what six seven months doing a nightly really really badly, Unprofessionally produced uh, Facebook Live for fifteen minutes.
1: Okay. So, yeah, but it was seven days a week, every day of the month, every right. every
2: day at seven o'clock so Mountain it was, Standard.
1: As a result, it was uh, not carefully thought out or planned. It, but we were just trying to maintain rapport were yeah. right. with what had been over the past few months. We had started to see some rapid growth and in interest and enthusiasm from our customers, and you know, many more customers. And we didn't want to lose that connection, at least as much as we could avoid that happening. So So, we tried to do it every single day, which was great for a while.
2: (laughs) Sometimes I was like April Fool's Day. I just started reading out of a joke book. Um, You know, I mean, sometimes we were we were really stretching. Everybody got to see me dance once. That was interesting. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I I know, like I, I joked after that, that. No one had to go through the disappointment of seeing me dance, which right. was, I think, a win <laughs> for everyone. Um, but then after a few months of that, uh, we kind of ran out of stuff to stay. Right. You know, seven days a week, it's even for people who are talkative, it's amazing how fast you run out of stuff to say. Right. Um,
2: it wasn't it, a training exercise, though. Right. Keep our comments to 15 minutes.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> So anyway, we, we pulled the plug on that and, and uh, you know, we I, hopefully we were able to at least to a degree maintain some connection with some of those new customers, which is what we were hoping for. Right. And of course, I think also everyone was hoping that COVID would not last as seriously as long as it did. Right. You know, of course, when we started doing that, we were hoping it would just be, well, we didn't really believe it, but I think everyone was hoping it wouldn't last too long. Um and once we started to realize, oh, this is going to be a while, well, we don't have that much
0: to say. So, right. <laughs> so um, you your brewery focuses on high-alcohol beers. That's kind of like your guys' that is, niche.
2: That is, I think you can say, our niche yes. and our
0: specialty.
2: Right. Um, um, why
0: What we what you, made know, you focus on that? And is that something you uh, actually personally like? Well, I, I think it's it's fair to say it's
1: multiple factors. And yes, we do personally like those beers. Same. same, um, same. The upfront caveat that we've always kept plus or minus half of all of our taps as, we believe anyway, very well-crafted, well-balanced, flavorful, but sessionable beers. Um, I got the 99 GABF gold medal for German Pils. Uh, so that's a recipe that we make around the year. Okay. And so we and we you do, made
2: the GABF gold winning American IPA.
1: Uh, it was actually World Beer Cup even. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I don't know. Best in uh, the then.
2: <laughs> fine.
1: Ooh, part of it. And uh, so you know we make beers like that, right? Uh, that we're confident they're well done and everything. But of course, if you've got, say, you've got a lovely pilsner, and you've got a lovely lovely 15 percent barrel aged imperial stout, what what are people going to talk about more? most of the time they're going to say, wow, that Imperial Stout. And so we definitely, like, as Laura said, that's like our niche. That's what people get uh, notice more and remember us for more. Um, I had experience doing this going really back to my homebrew days, back in the late eighties. My homebrewing buddy and I were fascinated by strong beers at the time So that goes to something you mentioned, you know, is it something that you just really enjoy and are interested in? And absolutely, yes, that is certainly part of it. Uh, And then along with that, as I transitioned into brewing professionally, um, I worked at several breweries over the years where they supported me on uh, doing very uncommonly strong beers, typically as a once or twice a year specialty But they supported me making those beers as barrel aging started to become a thing in the uh, late 90s. Because, like, bourbon barrel aging of beer really wasn't a thing until the mid-late 90s. Um, So, and I started, I went to brewing school with the guy who uh, developed that. He was the first guy to develop it, as far as I know. Greg Hall, the Goose Island owner for, you know, Bourbon County Stout. I went to school with him. And I remember him talking with me about it. And it was like, you know, um, I'm thinking about doing this thing. <laughs> and it's like, wow, I've never heard of anyone doing that before. And he's like, well, neither have I, but we think it might work and be pretty cool. And that sure kind enough. of deal is it just it's <laughs> funny. You know, nowadays you hear about Bourbon County Imperial Stout or right. Bourbon Barrel Asian Imperial Stout of any kind. And the idea of I don't know, is that going to work? It is. A strange thing to hear, but back then no one was doing it. So it was like, maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. And, uh, but I started doing that kind of stuff and I was supported by some of the breweries I worked at to do stuff like that. And it was reasonably well received. And what we started to see, um, uh, and this was around the time I started to get to know Laura in the late aughts and, uh, early teens was, there was a market for it. And obviously it was only a subset of the craft beer market, but there was definitely a market for folks who really thought those things were interesting, kind of above and beyond any other style of beer. And I think you could probably say that for any section of craft beer, but that was an area that not many folks did. And people often struggled to do well because high alcohol fermentations are tough. And, um,
2: and that's, so I mean that's where I wanted to interject is one of sure. the things that I think with practice, right, over over time but one of the things that Wayne um, his his gift in doing that is to create beers that aren't attenuated go high alcohol just for the sake of going high alcohol. You know, he's he, he's a yeast whisperer um, and and figures out how to, you know, stops the fermentation when it needs to be stopped. I mean, we've had we've had several experiences where we've gotten a, you know, a 13 percent beer where we thought we were going to get a 20 percent beer or, you know, stuff like that, where where this. This is just where
1: the beer wants to be.
2: And well, I and think the flavor
1: balance is great at that point. At that point. So even though you get more cool points for having a higher alcohol number mm-hmm. among the beer lovers, ultimately, you want to have that great does it really taste, taste great? Too. Yeah. And do you want to have another one? Of course. Yeah. Even if it's not a wise idea to have another one. And balance, I <laughs> think, is the biggest idea.
2: thing. <laughs> that is... <laughs> balance is the biggest thing. I mean, one of the one of the things that we can't market is the statements that we hear regularly, which is, um, oh, well, that didn't taste like X. It tasted, you know, a good 5% lower than that or whatever,
1: right. you know. In terms I was of alcohol by volume, it didn't right. taste like this alcohol gotcha. by volume. It right. tasted like less than that.
2: You, you right. really can't market that very well. Uh, <laughs> hey, we've got beer that doesn't taste like
1: Like it. it's as strong as it is. Um, <laughs> it's
2: <just laughs> yeah, a weird it's, statement. <laughs> But, but those comments are made regularly. Um, and that's, you know, that's the, the cool part about the interaction with people and in that niche of beer, you know. So right. we know we're doing good.
0: I do kind of love that, though, when I do have a, a strong a strong beer and it's like, oh, wow, it doesn't taste like it. It doesn't t- taste like a 15 percenter or it, t- it kind of tastes like, you know. I taste more flavor than I do the alcohol, the booziness. So, I mean, I, I, kind of, I kind of look forward to that a lot. Um, uh, being a business owner. We um, think most but, people do. Yeah, absolutely. Being a business owner, there's a lot that, that comes with it. Um, what are some qualities you both possess that make you good business owners? We, uh,
2: we tend not to give up like ever
0: (laughs) good which i suppose i mean
2: i you know that's it's it's definitely um gotten us through a lot of stuff so um yeah we just tend just simply not to take i mean okay we do take no for an answer but it's more like how do we get around that how do we get to the other side and you know we butt heads um a lot. With each other, sure. <laughs> yeah. So um and what are
1: the odds we're also married. So
2: right. Yeah. Um so so I think I think that's the biggest one is just really the tenacity that it takes to be a business owner. Um because it can be quite scary, it can be quite depressing, it can be um you know, and then just being able to pick out those little nuggets of wow, this was a good spot. You know, right. yep. um, while this, I this know really I worked. have twenty <laughs> other million things that I could be doing better right now, um, let's let's take that one thing and celebrate it for a hot second before we before we move on. Um, so. so yeah, I mean, I think they're
1: like she's sort of dancing around a topic too that we both lean in the direction of perfectionism, <laughs> which you know that's a. If ever there's a double-edged sword, that's certainly one. Um, it it encourages doing stuff well and consistently, and it can also encourage, you know, that, what's the old line, uh, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good or whatever. So it can also encourage making mistakes as well, or at least tactical errors. Right. Um, but I think also, it, you know, part of it as well is that i there are an awful lot of great brewers doing great things at an awful lot of great breweries in this country at this point. I I don't even remember where the count is now. I think it's nine or 10,000 breweries. I I, I think it's about who knows where we're at at this point, but it's a lot. I mean, for someone who grew up and started to get into the industry at a time when the idea of a thousand breweries was a decade away. Um, The idea of, Nearly 10,000 breweries was so far beyond imaginable. I mean, I, I lived through the bubble burst in the late 90s in craft beer, the so-called bubble burst, whatever. I mean, but it was there were some problems then. And one of the classic statements that was made in the late 90s was, well, the problem is there's just too many breweries and too many SKUs, you know, stock keeping units, too many brands on the shelves. It's just way, way, way too many there's almost a thousand breweries in the country. They've all got a bunch of beers. There's no way that the customer wants that many beers. And then fast forward to yeah, today. Fast forward to nine thousand. Uh, while, you know, when I hear the same same challenges being stated today, and I mean who knows? You, you know, there very well may, may be a place where that's starting to really push the limit on what is a reasonable amount of brands out on the shelves. I, having lived through that in the 90s, am always cautious about the, you know, the whatever you want to call it, like the doom saying of, oh, there's just too many. Well, maybe, maybe there are too many. And also maybe actually 20 years from now, we're going to look and say 10,000 breweries. That's nothing. We've got 50,000 yeah. now or whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm not predicting that at all, but that kind of thing can happen. And possible. so- having some history and perspective in the industry. And it's, it's my career. Um, I'm not, uh, someone who has another very successful and perhaps somewhat lucrative career and then decided to do something else. But I've got that to fall back on. If, if it just doesn't work, I could, I mean, this is my career. If in a worst case scenario, this business didn't work out, what would I do? Well, I would go to work for another brewery. Right. <laughs> that's that's go. what I would do. So there's also, I think, an aspect that plays to Laura's first statement of us being very determined to push through difficulties. It's also because this is what we do. This is our career. Uh, this is our field. It's not like I could go back to being a mechanical engineer or something like that. It's also a passion, so, too. Uh, so. So that absolutely, right. yes. So they, they, there are a bunch of things that play into us, I think, being able to do that. I, I mean, I guess other things that are all important, we haven't very important things that we haven't touched on as well. OK, you've either got to uh, be good at doing a lot of, you know, just multitasking in a 100 ways at once. Or you've got to be good at delegating um, and or perhaps both. Right. Uh, you know, so bookkeeping and accounting and human resources and uh you know employee management and a lot what of things of like jack, that.
0: Jack of all that trades maybe
1: if you were working as a brewer might not have been wheelhouse for you. Right. Um or more specifically, me. There you go. <laughs> I didn't spend much time doing bookkeeping and accounting earlier in my brewing career.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's not my specialty. Uh is there a moment that <laughs> kind of sticks out for you, for you both that, uh, stands out as a moment of success to you? Basically that you kind of like stood back and you're like, things are going in the right direction. This is, this is a good thing. And also how do you define um... success?
2: That's a really good question. I don't know. I just wait for myself to feel good. I don't know. Um, Success. <laughs> um, yeah, there, I mean, there, are, right? There are there are markers. Um, I like. Um, I I do, and I'll I'll reveal it. But Pete Slosberg from Pete's Wicked um, would say, I knew I'd made it. When I saw a Pete's Wicked bottle cap in the gutter, yeah, bad bad people littering, yeah. whatever. Um, Somebody drinking on the street. M- our yeah, <laughs> the yeah. Thing- <laughs> but
1: the brand was out there enough that people were even yeah, right. just throwing bottle caps in the gutter. Right.
2: Yeah, so so we do s- <clears throat> really specialty beer, and the people who are most excited about it are um, often. Collectors, traders, um, so my my marker, um, which we have hit, was um, I know we've made it when there's a ISO in search of on the secondary market. Um, so you know it's we've gone beyond our name has gotten into people's awareness they have become aware of the beer that we do and the quality that we have and and we are playing with the big boys Right. right um and the people that that i watch that we use as market research um for you know determining how our niche is moving along so Um, And we've reached that. So that was actually, and it was within this past year. So that was exciting. You know, Um, how we define success. I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, that one of the problems with entrepreneurs is there is no like actual measurement of success. There's always, oh, well, that was great. What's the next thing? Um, I think that's just a classic piece of being an entrepreneur. So how do we define success? Well, we met that measurement. So I said a different one, um, you know, and, and yeah, they're tangible bits. Um, you know, how many people show up at, at this particular dinner or, you know, things like that. They're, they're all small measuring sticks, but you know, then once you reach it, there's always something after that, you know, you celebrate, celebrate what you had. But but there is no <laughs> ultimate, you know, we made it.
1: Well, like <laughs> So here, here's a perfect example. I, you know, I spent almost 20 years brewing professionally in Michigan at various different places. And uh, one of my best experiences there, one of the best companies I worked for, for sure. Uh, and a personal friend, Bell's Brewery, Larry Bell. Uh, I remember Larry making the comment to me and I didn't see him that much because I was working a lot as third shift and Larry works hard and long or well, he did until last December when he sold the company, I guess. But uh, he worked hard and long, but he didn't spend a lot of third shift at the production plant. So I didn't see him a ton. But I do remember him making the comment that and this was a brewery that was doing like 200,000 barrels a year at the time, um, which is pretty darn big for a craft brewery. Yes. And he made the comment, well, you know, the thing is when you see price points for beers out on shelves, you know, whether in six packs of bottles or cans or whatever, um what people tend to not think about sometimes is the economy of scale that some of these brands have. And so someone was asking about, cause I think we were going into Texas at that time. And so they were talking about a company like Shiner, um, you know, relatively well-known Shiner. Yeah. yeah well, Bells Bells, Bells, Bell's was going into Texas. And right. so, uh, folks were talking about brands in Texas that would be competing with Bells. Um, and so Shiner, Shiner Bach was one of those brands that was like, it's not Bud Miller Coors. Mm-hmm. So it's quite crafty ish. Um, and Larry made the comment. He said, "Well, yeah, you know, and the thing is, they've got some different situations with their infrastructure and their economy of scale that help them do stuff at a better cost than we can." And it's kind of funny. You got a brewery that's doing that kind of volume, and yet still, right? Like to Laura's point, of you know, you the the goalposts keep moving. Right. You're trying to, all of a sudden now you're trying, or you're trying to compete with Sierra Nevada, and Sierra Nevada is much bigger than Bell's, and so, et cetera. And so, you know, it's that kind of a thing. The goalposts always keep moving for you. Right.
0: And uh, you talk um, about the owner of Bell's. Um, who do you think's influenced you? I'm sure you've met tons of brewers, tons of people in the industry, but who do you think's influenced you both the most?
1: I mean, I, I think there are a handful of good candidates there. Um, and two different people at Bell's though would be very strong ones. I mean, first of all, Larry himself, right. but also, I mean, and certainly in Michigan craft beer industry where I grew up in, well, grew up and also grew up in craft beer. Uh, he, it was super influential. Um, and then also, the guy who, for at this point, for over 20 years, has been the guy in charge of trying to make all the pieces work a guy named John Mallet, who, uh, for folks who enjoy reading nerdy books about brewing stuff, he wrote the book about malt. Uh, he's an instructor at the Siebel Institute. He, I mean, he's got a list of things that he's involved with and works on, in addition to also being in charge of trying to. Operate a company the size of Bell's. So he's got a lot of stuff on his plate. Um, But his uh, insight, his uh, just his intelligence, and his ability to both like focus as well as multitask at the same time uh, and always just be on top of safety and quality control in the product has always been a direct inspiration to me going back at this point for 30 or more years. So Got those would be for sure.
2: Well, and I, 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 I basically, I mean, John Mallet would be at the top of several lists that I have, but, um, definitely. I and mean, just the, just the kindness and, and, um, the apparent ability to flow. Um, you know, I'm sure he has his moments too, but, um, yeah, and and you know they, there are different people for different aspects of what I do as as well. You know, so so those who those um, people who are in charge of marketing or or you know social media or um, various things like that. But um, you know, I've been I've been really fortunate. In my learning in this industry, which has gone on for twelve years, and um, my good fortune has been that I've been able to sit down at the table with the names, you know, um, Chris White of White Labs, and and John Mallet, and Larry Bell, and you know, I mean, one of our first states was sitting in Larry Bell's office drinking absinthe, so. Um, shh, I didn't give that in, away. In, in Bellsby, um, too. <laughs> but, um, Sounds I've like been able to, to get to know these people who have already, um, who have already built their skill with grace right. and learn from that. And that's, that's super awesome. And there are also plenty of people that, are inspirational to me, you know, brewers at some of these breweries that um, are around us in Denver. Um, you know, people who are who, one who works in our tap room, who's an inspiration to me. And that's um, Beth Walter to call yeah. people out. Um, the and, famous
1: Falling Rock Tap House.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So you know, I I there are a lot of heroes in my life. So, yeah.
0: Cool. And uh, what does the future look like for Burns Family Artisan Ales? Where do you see the future of your brewery going?
1: Well,
2: I mean, I, yeah. I think we I think we actually have a, a really bright future. That things are starting to you know those goalposts are moving right. Um, right. So. Yeah. Um, You know, we are we are um, looking to get out into overseas. Um, France and Ireland are places that have been asking for our beer, um, do pop ups around the country, kind of get our get our feet into a little bit uh, more national distribution so that people can get to know our beer. We find that actually. there we have a very strong national presence that of course is always good when you don't distribute to those places
0: right that's great (laughs) but
2: that's part of that people talk about us yeah that's part of that trading thing you know um there are a lot of people who who were their first stop when they come in from out of town um and those are the people that are connecting us with you know you should do a pop up at this tap room and go to these couple of retailers and things like that. And let me help you get there. Um, And so that's, that's really, you know, next three years kind of, you know, what we're, what we're looking at there. And I think, I think, you know, it'd be nice to have a 10 year plan, but COVID did teach us something. Um, So, so, you know, three years, get our footing there and then look at, you know,
1: How we can produce more. Where does it make the most sense to focus our efforts, our attention, our growth, our our presence at various publicity events So, say, beer festivals, right? That's an obvious way to try to get out in front of new people, uh, as well as various bars where you get your beer on tap. It's not that you so much make a lot of money selling kegs of beer to a bar, uh, but you you know, you don't lose money, you make a little bit of money and you get in front of hopefully very enthusiastic beer customers who haven't tried your beer before. So some of those kinds of things, but then being able to having taken another year, two, three worth of experience in terms of however it turns out, and then seeing where it makes sense to really try to keep pushing ourselves out more and or, well, okay. So one thing I remember hearing, which I thought was really interesting, a place out of Cali, the brewery, you know, so top notch brewery and they have some definite parallels with our type of strong beer portfolio in terms of the beer that they send out in the market. And I remember very clearly uh, reading a piece of an interview with uh, the owner there and making the comment, it was either him or the, the head salesperson, one or the other. Um, that they were saying that most folks will say that the way to go is to be local and deep in your presence and your distribution, because of course you've got an advantage when you are very local because there's an inherent extra, like if everything, if everything else is a toss up, but one brewery is a half mile away and the other one's from two States away. Well, I'll go to the one that's from, Local. Right. And they said, it's funny because we're kind of the opposite of that. Our plan is instead of deep and local, our plan is shallow and wide. But that's because they're putting out beers like Black Tuesday that are 18 percent barrel aged imperial stouts in bottles and such. And so we
2: appreciate those people who drink them every
1: day. Right, but they there so there are a lot of them. Yeah, they're, 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 if you only go local, it. it's hard to <laughs> get too yeah. deep. You can't go too deep because there aren't thousands of people locally who are going to buy drinking, like Tuesday, no matter beer, how great of a beer it is. Right, and so that's like one of those interesting little things. You know, it depends on your niche and what makes sense for you, and then what the market is at the time too. Right, I ten years ago or twenty years ago, saying I want to go all in on craft blocker might have been looked at as, boy, that seems strange because IPAs. And now, of course, if you're saying that, you're like, well, of course, because that's one of the cool new things.
0: That's the thing. So, know.
1: You know, it, <clears throat> it's it, the goalposts always move.
0: For sure. Ever, Only constant is change. Craft, craft, craft beer ever-changing. Got to love that. Yes. I mean, like, who would have thought, you know, like, Hazy's would be, like, the biggest thing. Um, but, hey. Everybody's always like, "Oh, look at that! Look how clear this beer is! I can right? see right through it." Now hazy's are like the you know the things to drink. So Who, you never know. Uh, look
2: how I can't see through. And
0: it. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Look, if you I predicted that twenty five it. years delicious. ago, it wouldn't have. No one would have said that, <laughs> right? Um, so if somebody had come to you, which I'm sure they do all the time, and asked you for advice on opening their own brewery, what would you tell them?
2: Um, be, uh, learn, learn, uh, if you're, if you're going to do a brewery, then you should have already learned from somebody who knows how to brew and you should have already spent a decent amount of time doing some kind of following and, you know, shadowing of people in a brewery that you respect. Right. Um, um, You know, it doesn't necessarily matter that they need to be long time on the earth or, you know, people that we hang out with. But um, but yeah, shadowing is a really super important part of of learning and and (laughs) um, don't expect it all to be great. You know, just, you know, keep keep trying to figure things out. Um, You know, even if you have a huge amount of success like right away don't get complacent, Um, things like that. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, and and I mean, I I agree with all of that. And one thing I would say, and this comes from previous experience with, because I think most often folks who are considering the possibility of trying to transition into opening their own place, there's basically two regions they come from. Either they're folks working at a brewery currently in thinking, you know, I'd really like to do my own thing. Or... Most often, other than that, I would say it's homebrewers who have some skill and experience in understanding of the brewing process and the raw ingredients and what's necessary to make beer. And they're thinking, you know, very often I think, you know, my job maybe pays me pretty well, but I really don't enjoy it. I'd I'd much rather do something that I enjoy more and I, boy, I love brewing beer and, and it seems like the community is great and all of that. And those are, both of those are very fair things, but I think especially, especially for the folks who are uh, coming from the perspective of, or from the place of not currently working as a professional brewer, getting some experience Working as a professional brewer, you know, it doesn't mean you have to do it for 10 or 20 years before you try to open a place, in my humble opinion. But I think probably, you know, and it, pick a number out of the air, but say, you know, work for at least a year as a professional brewer. For And I, I would say this for two main reasons. One is, is it still as fun for you when it's your job, not your hobby? Right. Because, of course, your hobby is fun. I mean, of course. And, and it doesn't matter like if something goes wrong with your hobby, well, okay, I made a five gallon batch of beer and it absolutely didn't work and I'm just gonna dump the whole thing. Well, okay, you're out 20 or 40 bucks. It doesn't it doesn't really matter. But if you have that happen with a batch of beer a of scale. <laughs> at a brewery, that kind of thing is a whole different animal. And, and so then as a result, the stress and anxiety and pressure to get everything right, in my experience, feels distinctly different from doing it as a hobby. And then the other thing I would say as well, this is for me spending a fair amount of my life working in the greater Detroit area. And of course, that's part of the reason for the high octane Wayne nickname because of the car industry there. (laughs) But there were an awful lot of folks among the homebrewing community there who were... uh, and I'm sure still are uh, engineers in the auto industry, very sharp people, well-educated and very good at working with gadgets on their homebrew system. Also, and this comes directly from a guy who won a homebrew contest And the uh, prize was he got to brew the recipe on the commercial brewery, the homebrew, the okay. club was at the brewery. Okay. So he got to make the beer with us at the brewery. And this guy was a, middle-aged pudgy guy who worked at a desk because you know and he had a wife he had kids he had a house and he needed to uh realize really quickly that that process of shoveling the grain out physically. of the mash tun oh it's
0: and of course we were
1: making a barley wine yeah. because he, he had one with a strong beer so there's a lot of grain <laughs> yeah and he realized very quickly, oh man, I just can't do this. Can you finish this for me? <laughs> you know. Sure, man, that's fine. That's fine. But what he realized is, boy, if I want to do this as a career, I've got to get in better shape. Yeah. And I was like, well, you know, I don't want to be mean, but um in my mind I was like, Yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't you don't actually see a lot of professional brewers who are sedentary looking. They may or may not be skinny, right. but they're generally pretty physical people. Of course. And it's because the job is pretty physical. Yeah. And that's something I think a lot of folks don't realize, so it could be a real concern uh for someone who wants to get in and do their own place and then they don't kind of realize what they're getting into and that's another area where work a year
0: as a brewer will help you to realize, do I really want to do this? <laughs> All good advice. Thank you. Uh, and did you happen to have a funny story for us? I actually did come up with one. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Did you? Because yeah. I have
2: one too. Oh.
0: oh. Well, <laughs> will see you, you, how
2: long yours is and then I'll, I'll pipe it.
1: Okay. So this one, this one is actually pretty brief Okay. <laughs> and it, it carries brief some extra. and
2: mean generally don't go hand in hand. <laughs>
1: It carries some extra funny because the uh, people in the story are pretty well known in the craft beer industry. So I'm going to, with apologies up front to Vinny and Natalie, Salurzo um, of Russian River. Russian River. I was hanging out at World Beer Cup judging with John Mallet, which is how I get to know all these people because he knows all these people. And in several other really well-known people in the industry And it just so had Vinny and Natalie were part of this group of six or eight folks. And it just so happened that the way the conversation went, I'm chatting with Natalie. Vinny's talking with some other folks and I forget just how we got to it. But she, you know, we were talking about the experience of growing up in the industry and like we're not young people anymore. We're middle aged people and this sort of thing. And Natalie's like, well, you know, that's true. But also, I think we're really lucky. I mean, Vinny is gorgeous, don't you think? And I was kind of like, I'm not the best judge of that, but he seems like a really handsome guy. And she's like, yeah, and he's got a gorgeous ass. (laughs) Yeah, Straight from Natalie's mouth. Sorry, Natalie. (laughs) Right? Yeah.
0: But it was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what to say to that. (laughs) Sure, I'll take your word for it. (laughs) Right. And did you want to go? Yeah, your yeah, that's my yeah. right. yeah, well,
2: story. It, it is short. There you go. <laughs> I don't know that I can top that one. So you have to get a call from Natalie, though. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> she'd be like, "That was a private story." Yeah. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get you. Uh, so I have a little <laughs> segment called Quick Fire Five. It's five quick questions, beer related. Uh, ready? Ready? Okay. Uh, somebody comes into your brewery. What's one of the beers you recommend they try?
2: Uh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I, and I think we all, everybody who's behind the bar, says the same thing. What beers do you like? Um, we have a great tap list that is very broad. We have Belgians. We have strong beer. We have um, you know, l- very Fun beers like a beer that tastes like uh, lemon meringue pie, and you know, things like that. So, um, so yeah, um, and I always steer away from, you know, the, there's the whole like, oh yeah, what's your favorite beer? And I'm like, dude, these are my babies. Like, <laughs>
0: you can't pick um, just one.
2: I'm not gonna talk in front of them, they're one of them's gonna like hit me or something. Um, <laughs> anyway, well, if so if you had to pick just yeah, one, what's your
0: answer? What, which one would you pick to? Right. For somebody to try.
2: Well, and that is, I guess that always goes to if you want to hit something that most people talk about, it's going to be your barrel aged imperial stuff, you know, and get a small pour. It's four ounces. Right. Take a little bit of time with it. Um, if you want something that that showcases how classic um, classic brewing happens with Wayne, then get our pills. You know, it's the 1999 uh, GABF gold medal winning recipe, not beer. It's a much um, pressure <laughs> <laughs> so much fresher batch.
1: Gotcha.
2: So, yeah.
1: It, that's the uh, certified Cicerone talking there. Uh, right. <laughs> she can't make herself just say one beer. All right. I I mean, I, I will say one beer with the caveat that basically my take is the same as hers, but I'll just say the German
0: Pills. German Pills. Gotcha. Uh, if you could collaborate with any other brewery on a beer, who would it be? Uh, one that, and we're kicking around this idea
1: right now, actually, uh, that I would consider myself incredibly honored to be able to try to make happen. Uh, a guy named Peter Buchert, uh, pretty well known in the industry, at least uh, he was in charge of new Belgium for decades. And before that. and he was at Rodenbach before he was in charge of new Belgium. And then about five years ago, he, in fact, I think this was their five year anniversary. He opened up a small place of his own uh, just outside of Fort Collins, uh, that focuses entirely on barrel-aged, uh, wild-mixed sour uh, beers. Interesting. And uh, so my thought is to do a super high alcohol content, wild-mixed barrel-aged sour with Peter Buchert, who, mm-hmm. right, the whole reason basically that sour beer exists in America um and also just a super nice and incredibly smart guy uh so that would be a huge honor for me if we can make that all come together
0: all right um huh. favorite style of beer oh uh, <laughs> west coast ipa west coast ipa okay. yeah
2: hop slam is
0: actually my favorite beer oh hop slam's great I'll, I'll
1: pick the left field one. Uh, uh, Bamberg rock beer. All right. I've actually got a lot of favorites, but that's like, I love that. And
0: it's one
1: that probably almost
0: no one picks. So. Gotcha. Uh, favorite name for beer, I'm sorry, favorite name you've come up with for one of your beers. Oh dear. Do you have a favorite
2: name?
0: I'm trying to, I mean, there are a lot of names
1: <laughs> that Laura is almost entirely responsible for the names because she's just way, way better at that than I am. Um, but uh, so there are actually a lot that I really like. But as a knee jerk off the top of my head, I'm going to go with the Ship of Theseus because we basically use an identical recipe to the beer that I won a bunch of medals with at another brewery with, with whom permission. we're, with permission, we're yeah. very good friends with them. <laughs> Uh, and the name Ship of Theseus is a reference to a philosophical uh, problem, thought experiment that is the basis for intellectual property law.
0: Oh, there you <laughs> so go. it ties back to the fact that we're using the same recipe. I know you guys didn't see it, but my yeah. brain just exploded in my head, so. <laughs> 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 and, That's awesome. and you have one keg of beer to hold to hold you over for a two-week quarantine what beer are you choosing um basically your desert island desert island beer
1: it's it's MP. I, that's our the, german toast. Yeah. yeah okay i mean if i were to if i were to say my own beer i think i would say that or maybe like the 20% bourbon barrel aged imperial stout just depending on how drunk i <laughs> wanted to be um, or i could say orval of course that's not my beer but
0: whichever a keg like of Orval would be awesome well there you go <laughs> well guys that's all i got for you thank you so much for being well on. thank
2: you so much for your time yeah
0: no thank this you this was fun thank, thank you, you yeah. i'm mike Curtin for the brew world order podcast here with wayne burns and laura worley co-founders of burns family artisan in denver colorado thank you guys
1: cheers thank you cheers, cheers.
0: Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to my interview with Wayne Burns and Laura Worley, co-owners of Burns Family Artisan Ales in Denver, Colorado. You know how it goes, whether you're passing through, you live in the area, or visiting a friend nearby, definitely check them out. If you like high alcohol beers, this is the place for you. Give them a follow on social media too to see what they're brewing. Every other Sunday I'll be releasing a new episode. Subscribe, and you'll never miss it, unless you want to miss it. And then, that's your problem. Check out our social media, too, for updates on the podcast. Also, check out our YouTube channel where you get to watch videos of me interview brewery owners. That's what you came here for. I'm Mike Curtin for the Brewer Daughter Podcast. You stay safe out there.